what's going on? It's time for another episode of Too Hard for the Radio. Transmitting from the future free state of Greater Idaho, I am the one-armed madman. And from the UK, we've got adventure rider Chris Donaldson. Chris, thanks for coming on tonight. How are we doing over there in the UK? You said you were one beer in, so you're doing one beer better than I am. It was seven, seven hours ahead, one beer in. Yeah, it's a good start to the weekend. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I started riding dirt bikes as a kid, as people all here listen and know. And I've always wanted to do something crazy. I've always wanted to go ride Baja or just take a big, long ride out to Yellowstone or out to Sturgis. I don't really have the bike for it. I uh, The only long ride I've ever taken... I took on a DRZ 400, and it was about 500 miles, and my ass hurt the entire way. <laughs> so how how did you um, how did you decide to take this trip? What got you into motorcycles? What got me into motorcycles? That's a big question. Uh, had a motorbike since I was 16. I bought an old BSA Bantam and did it up when it was before I could even get my license, I guess. Um, it was bought, brought up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And in the 70s, it wasn't probably the best place to, to grow up. It was just went to school in the center of town. You could see bombs going off out the school windows. His friends got, you know, his few friends got into trouble. And I never got into too much bother, but my parents built. But my parents' shop got blown up a few times. So it was a hairy enough place to grow up. Um, although when we were kids, you kids you don't really notice because you don't, it's, everything's just normal to you. But at the time I got to being a teenager, I wanted to get out and about, get out of Northern Ireland and decided to ride a motorbike to Australia. Um, I guess I wanted to see a bit of the world as well. Let's get to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, back in 79, October 79, I just finished my college education and decided to go. And I got from Belfast to London. It's about 300 miles. And I got to London. And uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini decided to take over the American embassy in Tehran. And the Islamic Revolution kicked off. And that was the end of my trip east because I wasn't going to drive through Iran through that. So I was stuck in a bit of a predicament because I told all my friends I was going to Australia. <laughs> so I couldn't go back two weeks later and say I got as far as London and I came home, you know. <laughs> so uh, I uh, did a quick re- re- reboot and decided to go to South Africa instead. So it was a bit of a, a pain because I'd been planning to go to Australia. I'd got all the guidebooks, my maps and my visas and my carnet de passage for all the countries going to Australia. And that was all out the window because Africa was completely different. So I ended up driving down to Athens, uh, taking a boat to Israel, thinking they could get from there into Egypt, which I couldn't do because they were still not talking to each other. Um, went up through Syria and Jordan and finally got to Egypt. Um, drove down through this across the Sahara and down to South Africa. Um, the book I wrote recently is called "Going the Wrong Way" for obvious reasons. Yeah, I ended up <laughs> ended up in Argentina two years later after setting off for Australia. Man. So it's uh, a bit of a a roundabout roundabout tale of going around the world. Um, but it it was part of the beauty the, the beauty of the adventure was the fact that I actually on reflection whenever I realised. Not knowing where I was going was a huge advantage because I was traveling for the journey rather than the the destination, you know? Yeah. You don't have to hit these certain marks on a map by a certain day or anything like that. Yeah. You're just going for the, going with the flow, traveling day by day, and you didn't know where you were going to get to because you didn't know what was ahead of you, really, anyway. Yeah. Um, at one stage I drove down driving through Sudan and I actually drove off the edge of my map I didn't even know what countries were, were further south oh wow which is kind of hard <laughs> to believe these days with the internet everything's on your fingertips if you want to know what's happening in a country or in a place or city just google it it'll tell you exactly what's going on if you want to book your hotel ahead you've got booking.com you want to don't get lost you've got GPS maps you've got 
everything is everything's on your phone, everything you'd ever need. Uh, your finances are there, you know, your communication, you can phone home. But it's kind of hard to imagine 40 years ago you couldn't do any of those things, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you were traveling with somebody and you got separated, you weren't ever going to find them again. There's just no way to do it. What are you going to do? <laughs> That's right. You just have to make some sort of, some sort of arrangement to, to yeah. meet up or something like that. If you don't have an arrangement yeah. set up ahead of time, you're gone. Yeah, no, I was talking to a friend there. He did the same sort of thing at the same time. They, they split up, they were driving across Turkey, and they, one guy fell off his bike. And he, he wasn't badly injured, but he had to go to the hospital to get stitched up. And they never found the other guy again. They just never found each other again. The guy yeah. who's on a different road, he went on, and they, they never met up again. So uh, it's just strange. The world's got a lot smaller, a lot better, but it has taken a bit of the magic away from it because there was something magical about not knowing what you were doing. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> and I think we've lost something. Um, GPS has taken something away from us, I should say, rather. When I was even younger, um, you know, I moved to Southern California when I was 18, and they didn't. we didn't have GPSing cars at that point. Like, you could print out map quests yeah. on a piece of paper, but that was the closest thing we had to maps in, in an 18-year-old's rig. And I would go every day. I would leave my house, and I would drive a different way to work. And within a yeah. couple of weeks, I knew that place like the back of my hand. Now, yeah, so, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, I moved to Nampa, Idaho, eight years ago from Northern California, and I'm still using maps all the time here in my hometown because I just don't have that thing anymore. And, you know, I used to be able to remember where I was going. I could go somewhere. I'd go to someone's house for the first time, and I'd always remember how to get back there. You never had to ask for directions yeah. again. And now, no, no, good luck. It, you're just following directions from the, the, the phone. You don't, you don't actually think about where you're going or the, what the landmarks are, so you don't know where, where you are. And you do pick up, well, we did pick up a sense of direction. I mean, I could go to a city and you'd have a fair idea of where, what direction you, you want to go in, where the place you, you want to be, where it is. Uh, not a sixth sense, but just a sense of, sense of direction. Yeah. But I think kids these days won't have that because, as you say, they just follow the directions that the, the lady on the phone tells them to follow, you know? Yeah. If GPS, uh, GPS goes down uh, sometime, there's going to be lots of people in the world going driving around in circles trying to find a way home. Yeah. I, um, you know, as a kid, I grew up trail riding before I started right, racing on tracks. And um, you learn how to read terrain. People don't understand that who've never right. been off-road. You, you learn how to read terrain to a way where you can know what's going to happen in a general way around the next corner or over the next hill, because you kind of know what the terrain's doing in that area. <clears throat> yeah. Just experience. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, I ended up in South Africa six months later. Um, it was actually a bit of a disappointment because it was the end of the trip as such, you know, the end of the road journey was over as far as Africa was concerned. So even actually when I got to the destination, the secondary destination was disappointed. So I managed to get a job in a yacht race and uh, sailed back to Europe and got oh. the bike shipped to the States. Cool. Um, as part of the sponsorship. So it was pretty cool. Uh, so I ended up with the bike in LA a few months later with the American in front of me. So I drove up the West Coast um, up to Vancouver, across Canada, and then decided to go down to South America. So stopped in the States for a few months, got some more money, and ended up in uh, Bolivia six months later. Uh, pretty broke, hepatitis, and bike, which was hardly oh, starting to fall apart. So it was, uh, <clears throat> it was a pretty eventful trip altogether. Were you, a, uh, were you a good mechanic, or did you need help when the bike broke down? Um. Well, necessity is a great teacher, and mm -hmm. um, as soon as you start, you, things go wrong. You put the put it right. You, 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 nobody else to. One of the things I learned was if you, you get into trouble wherever you are, there's only yourself really to 
to get yourself out of it again. I think society these days, there's always somebody to ask, somebody to check on YouTube or yeah, <laughs> uh, somebody to hold your hand, whether it's your parents, your family, your friends, whatever. But if you're traveling on your own, you learn it pretty quick that it's only yourself that's going to get you through that border, or fix that carburetor or whatever it is that's going wrong. You got to put it right yourself. So you, you do learn self-reliance very strongly, you know? Yeah. Big, big bag of zip ties and a roll of bailing wire. Some, well, they didn't even some, have zip ties in those days. Oh, so no zip ties. Those, so it's just well, bailing wire. Yeah. Oh man. So I don't even think bailing wire and a, bailing wire and a <laughs> yeah. pair of, pair of pliers and I'll be good for a couple hundred miles. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think duct tape had even been invented then. It was oh, been how it managed itself, you know? I, I <laughs> remember we were out riding one time and this guy had a really old, I think it was my uncle had a really old 250 and it had a drum brake on the rear. So it had that big long bar that would yeah. actuate it and the bar broke, but we had a bunch of bailing wire wrapped around one of our fork tubes. So there you go. Drum well, brake. Go, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, in Africa, got down Africa, the suspension was completely wrecked. And the only thing holding the front wheel on was the whole front of the wheel assembly was the, the brake pipes, the flexible rubber brake pipes. So I ended up having to make a concoct a shock absorber system from nylon rope, tying nylon rope between the handlebars and the, the uh, front wheel axle to stop the front wheel falling off. Actually worked surprisingly well. Nice. Think of the copywriting it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you do learn to look after yourself. Oh, you got to. So you're in Bolivia. You're out of money. Hepatitis. That's got to suck. Yeah, uh, it was pretty bad. I ran out of money because I had to stop traveling. I had to set up in a hotel and just wait, try and get better, and I ran out of money. So. I was able to look, struggle to find a, a, a UK guy who was, had a bike who was working out there and he was able to get some money transferred over and um, got on the train to Buenos Aires to come home uh, because the weather was so bad. And the, the, the weather was so bad, I got to the border with uh, Argentina and the train had to stop because the railway line had been washed away. Mm. So you can imagine what the roads are, what the dirt roads are like when the railway line's yeah. washed away. Yeah. So it was pretty hectic. But uh, so I was back in 1981. I got the bike home and normal life resumed. Uh, I did start writing a book, but I gave up because there's a guy called Ted Simon wrote Jupiter's Travels. I don't know if anybody's ever read it, but it's a great book. But And he did more or less the same thing as I'd done. But he'd done it much better than I had because he was about 20 years older and he had a bit of money and he'd, uh, he was a professional writer. So he... I just thought, well, I can't compete with that and gave up writing. But then about uh, three years ago, I decided I may as well get the story down because it is different from anybody else's I've read. So yeah. I wrote the book, um, published it a couple of years ago, and it's certainly had a huge impact on my life because it's got me right back into bikes again for a start. And uh, it was a tremendous challenge writing a book because I'm not a an intellectual by any means, an <laughs> academic. I was never, always bottom of the class of English. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, so if basically the moral of the story is if I can write a book and get on the bestseller list on Amazon, literally anybody can because it's uh, it's, it's in any of, us, any of us to write a book, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I've been a writer for a while. I haven't done anything worth putting out yet. I've been working on stuff. But, um, you know, I've had a, a few writers on here now, and all of them got up to top sellers on Amazon, self-published. I don't know if you're self-published or if you went with a publisher. Yeah, self-published. 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 Another self-published, and it's great. You own your own product. You're responsible for your own, you know, <clears throat> um, sales. You get on all the podcasts. You don't need a, a publisher to sign you up for a podcast service to get on and sell your own book. You know, they're only interested in selling certain books, not, not yeah, others. Yeah. No, there's another learning experience. So actually once you've written a book, actually getting it published and getting it self-published and getting it online and getting it uh, ebook to ebook and an audio book and the whole thing. Uh, available to everybody, but the technology is incredible. It's 
you can now sell your book all over the world. Uh, you can publish it yourself. You can sell it all over the world through Amazon, through the different uh, online bookshops. Yeah, it's uh, you get you get so used to having these systems available. I think so many people like myself are a certain age that uh, you remember when it was harder to to get involved with that. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, if you weren't able to get in the door of the publishing agency, you weren't getting your book out. Just no, there was gatekeepers, and they decided what went out and what didn't go out. Um, yeah, yeah. So back to your journey. What were some of the, um, <clears throat> did you have any hairy situations, any times where you felt like you were in danger or, uh-oh, maybe I should have went the other way? Quite a few. I mean, probably the, the adventure really started when I got to Africa because I was riding a Mutagazi Le Mans, mm -hmm. which had put higher bars on. Mutagazi Le Mans so basically a cafe racer, uh, which had the... the, the, the put a top box and panniers on it and the higher bars on the screen and then proceeded to try to drive across the Sahara Desert. Uh, it was before adventure bikes had really come into their own. So yeah. any bike you had was an adventure bike. You just had the tires down and drove it over the sand, you know. But that was pretty hairy. It took about a week to cross 300 miles of desert. Uh, and the problem with that was after I got south of the Sahara, there was no going back because I wasn't going to drive back over that again. So I had to go through some very hairy, hairy countries, Uganda, um, Zimbabwe was just finished their civil war. So the whole of Africa was basically, it's usually a weekend away from civil war, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a lot of AK-47s kicking around. And we got stopped by some child soldiers in northern uh, Uganda at one stage, and they were pretty uptight. They hadn't been paid by the army. They hadn't been... They've been terrorizing the population. Yeah. Um, all the hotels were shut. They ended up sleeping in the police station for three or four nights just to get somewhere safe to stay. So, yeah, there were some fairly hairy situations around there, you know. Man, I, I can't imagine being in Africa at, <laughs> at that time. I mean, it's dangerous now. I can't imagine what it was like back then. Um what kind of, did you meet any interesting people? I'm sure you met a lot of interesting people, but any people that you met stand out? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, um, guys you meet in the road are, there's a certain type, I suppose, people are wanting to get away. Everybody's, whether there's something wrong with your head, whether you're, <laughs> you're on the spectrum or whatever you want, to, you want to put it, but most people doing this sort of trip are, um, they've made a decision to leave home and go off on a motorbike or go off traveling, cut off your ties. So you do have something in common with a lot of people you meet. Um, funny enough, I've, since I wrote the book, one of my mates said to me, well, you never actually got to Australia. Um, why not give it another go? This is two, three years ago. So we thought just after COVID, we, we decided we'll just see if we can ride our motorbikes to Belf from Belfast to Australia. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems is we've got a family now, I've got work commitments, self-employed, but I've still got commitments. So uh, we decided we'll do we'll ride for two weeks and then we'll park up the bikes, come home and come back two or three months later. So it took me a year and a half, basically, to, first of all, rode down to Athens and then across to Israel, tried to get into Jordan, couldn't get in again. So back to Athens and then I rode to, uh, through Turkey to Iran and down to Dubai. Parked up in Dubai, came back three months later, rode through Iran to Pakistan to Lahore, parked up there, and then back to so on until we got to Nepal. So in the last month, I finally got to Australia, which is so kind of ironic because it's forty three years after I left Belfast originally, to ride the motorbike to Australia. Um, I was still on the same motorcycle, kept the oh, bike wow. over the years. So uh, forty five. <laughs> 43 years later, managed to, the two of us finally got there. Uh, first time on the left, it was 21, and the bike was two. I'm now 64, the bike's 45, sort of thing. So it's, uh, I think we've a combined age of 109 now. So. <laughs> and it's it's incredible what they can do with these old bikes nowadays. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it's in better shape now than it was off the showroom. <clears throat> well, the wiring's it's had a bit of a hammering. It's had a, it's had a hard paper round, as we say in Belfast. Yeah. But uh, but going back to meeting people, uh, it's, uh, you, uh, 40 years ago when you lost a company, you left somebody, you traveled with them and said goodbye. Very often you pretty much thought, well, I'll probably never see them again, you know? Unless you're into writing Christmas cards and birthday cards and that sort of thing, which most blokes aren't. Um, but there's a couple of guys I traveled with 40 years ago through the wonders of the internet. I was able to contact them again and track them down. In fact, there's one guy uh, called, was he, give me his name, Jeff, and he lived in a little village in Scotland. Um, and I was near there a couple of years ago. I decided to call in. And of course, the address he gave me the old schoolhouse was had been changed hands several times. But I was actually met the postmistress, and he was able to give me a, a number of somebody called Godfrey who lived, who had a motorbike in the town. So I tracked this guy down, and it was the same guy. He'd actually changed his name because he didn't like the name Godfrey when he was a te- teenager. But uh, it was pretty cool meeting up with somebody who used to travel with 40 odd years ago. Had not a word with him since then, but to meet up with him last year was really cool. When I used to went went out for a motorbike ride with him for a couple of weeks weekends, catch up. It's, it's funny, but guys, you you meet somebody from that long ago. You've been going a different way in your world, and he has as well. But you get together again, and you just get on the way same way as you always did, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, so. so um, where did you enjoy more, Africa or South America? Um, I probably got more out of Africa. It was more difficult in Africa. There's more more trials, more challenges. More uh, the roads were worse. The conditions were worse. The um, the people were harder to get through. The revolutions were worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was all new to me, and it was all uh, excitement and uh, more of a challenge. Whereas by the time I got to South America. I've been on the road for a year. I was getting a bit jaded, probably. You know, sort of seen one banana plantation. You've seen them all. You've seen one pyramid. You've seen them all. You know, you've seen yeah. the Aztecs. You've seen the. You, know, you it all becomes a bit too much after a while. Um, it's one of the nice things about actually this trip of going to Australia because we only did it two weeks at a time, so yeah, it wasn't too long to get jaded to get uh, over dosed with palaces and I mean, it's a beautiful scenery but you know, once you've seen one fantastic mountain you, you want to see them you know, but the third day you don't even notice them anymore you know yeah so it's, it's good to, to break <clears throat> the trip up but probably africa was the place to get the most out of yeah did you ride through um through um geez, australia at all or was that just like the end and we're going to call it a go well, I rode from uh, Brisbane down to Sydney and then Sydney down to Melbourne, which is about, I did about 2,000 miles altogether. So about 50, it was a direct line, about 1,600 miles, which is a fair bit of distance from Belfast in, in Europe. But actually in Australia, Australia is such a huge country. You know, it's the size of North America. Yeah. Um, but there's only 25 million people in it, as opposed to what, 300 million in America. So it's a huge country with a tiny population. There's so much to see. I'll have to go back and do a bit more there. So I left a bike in Melbourne at the minute. So I'll oh, nice. get back, pick it up, doing a few more miles, and uh, then hopefully take it around the States to come come back home. I've got to bring it back home somehow. So I may as well bring it back the, the, over the Americas and come back that way. Finally, finally right, take it right around the world, you know? Yeah. So, you know, if man... I don't think I could have rode through Africa or South America without a gun on me. Were you traveling with a gun or was that, did you think that would have been more dangerous at some point? <laughs> well, that would have been more dangerous. I always thought that about guns. You've got a gun. If you're going to have a gun, you've got to be prepared to shoot somebody first because there's no point in being, no point in being second, really, in a, in a shootout, is there? So, uh, no, I always even talking using my using my tongue to talk my way out of situations rather than trying to use use a gun. Place like Africa, you just get yourself into trouble. 
That's kind of what know, I was thinking. Americans, Americans are big into your guns. Um, but no, from Belfast, it's in enough guns around Belfast to, to not want to be involved with them anymore. Right on. Uh, were you ever um, like, um, I guess I kind of already asked you that. Uh, what were you traveling with? So like, were you camping out, just laying on the ground? Did you have a tent? What kind of stuff were you traveling with? Well, probably the biggest trouble I had was the fact it was originally going to Australia, which would have taken about three months and 10,000 miles, whereas I was trying to end up traveling for about a year and a half, doing about 40,000 miles. So my finances were severely strained. Uh, I did work in the States for a while, got some money that way, but really was running out of money, living from hand to mouth the whole time. And any money I did have was going into motorbike, first of all, into petrol and servicing. And really accommodation and food was a sort of third and fourth options on the list. So, but the likes of Africa and South America, you kind of live very cheap. You live in a couple of dollars a day, you know, because that's what the locals do. The mm -hmm. bowl of rice and an egg or a cup of tea, you really can live very cheap. And the hostels, the working men's hostels and the uh, doll sizes you slept in are they're pretty, pretty cheap too. But we'd have a tent as well. We'd sit on the side of the road or in a field, wherever, just somewhere cheap, just to keep the costs down. It was nice this last year going to going to Australia. You know, I've got forty years work behind me, I've a bit more wealth behind me, so I was able to stay in hotels and stuff. So it was a nice bit of one of the biggest changes, I suppose, from when I was twenty one. Um, but I needed to because when you're twenty one, you can ride all day have a shower and party all night and do the same again the next day, you know? Yeah. By the time you get 60s, you, get, you can't do that. You, I can party all day or I can ride all day, but I can't do both. <laughs> yeah. So you're be right, you'd ride all day and you'd end up back at a hotel with a cup of cocoa and an early night and hook yourself in and get up the next day and do it all over again, you know? Yeah, that sounds more like the type of thing I'd be doing or maybe like sitting in an ice bath at night. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a few times, it was a few aches and pains as well, which I didn't have when I was in the twenties as well. I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, did you get sore? But it's amazing what you can do. With that long... it. How much did you ride a day? Yeah, like... I mean, you you ride only between two hundred and five hundred miles a day. That's a lot of miles. So uh, it's a lot of miles, you know, and it all builds up. Um, so it depends so much on the road conditions as well. You know, you can uh, in the desert. I think our worst I was driving. We were ride one day. We were on the road or on the on the bike all day. We did ten miles because the the desert was so the road was so bad. There was no road. In fact, most of the time. Yeah. Whereas other times I've done seven or eight hundred miles in a day. You know, it just depends on the road surfaces. But uh, usually a couple of. So if you try and do a couple of hundred miles in a day, try and do a hundred miles in the morning. First thing, the, the for earlier miles are easier because you're fresher and then try and leave the afternoon for a bit more casual traveling and taking an interest in what's going on around the place. But you do have to, if you're doing a, a intercontinental travel like that, you do have to bear in mind you've got to do miles every day. Otherwise you're never going to get there, you know? Yeah. What was worse, hot or cold? Um, well, I went from Turkey in March last year was snowing and blizzards. It was minus minus eleven at one stage, and two days later it was in the um, the Iranian desert, which is about plus forty five. Um, both were pretty uncomfortable. I think probably the cold's the worst because you don't feel like you could actually freeze to death. Yeah. Whereas if it's hot, you just drink lots of water. Just keep drinking water. Yeah, I have. I was riding my, I was riding my Buell from Sacramento to, to San Francisco at one point in the summertime. I think it was like 112 this is Fahrenheit. I don't know what that would be in Celsius, but it is hot as you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and yeah, I could yeah, feel yeah. the black. The sweat top. just is evaporating off you. Yeah, I could feel the black top burning the bottom of my arms. It was so hot. And I, this bike's air cooled. Yeah. 
the bike's air cooled. So I was worried about it. So I was stopping every few, you know, few miles sometimes. And it was just unbearable in the heat. I've never been in the actual cold on, on this. I I've worked in negative 30 Fahrenheit. I think at some point when you get so low, they even out. So again, like as cold as you can possibly get. And I, I, I don't think I could do the bike on that riding up and down the coast when it was 50 degrees and foggy froze me out. I couldn't handle it. Yeah. Well, the trouble with the motorbike in the cold is you're just sitting there doing nothing. Working in the cold is not so bad or skiing is not so bad because your body's moving. You're generating heat when you're, when you're doing something uh, athletic, you know, your, your heart's pumping and you're generating heat. If you're sitting on a motorbike, you're just sitting there. And no matter what you're wearing, you're just going to be getting colder and colder and colder as the cold gets through to you. Yeah. So it is um, interesting enough. You'd be fine. Just get stiffer and stiffer. You get off of the petrol station and gas up, go inside, try and warm up. And it wouldn't be until you got inside, you, you're because you're starting to move, your body's starting to move, that the blood starts moving around your limbs again. And I think. It's, your your limbs actually start freezing first, and you get inside, and your blood's good. All of a sudden, you start shaking uncontrollably, mm-hmm. even though you'd actually, by that stage, you're in the warmth. So it was pretty weird. You know, you're okay when you're in the cold because you're just sitting there, but as soon as you start moving around, the blood starts going through your your organs. Actually, that's when you start freezing. You know, so it was pretty unpleasant. What were in some fact, of the I wonder year- why you do these things at all sometimes, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. What uh? What was some of your favorite places that you went? Like, well, the last trip, probably Iran was my favorite place because it was always a boogeyman. It stopped me going to Australia the first time, and it was difficult to get into and to get out of uh, with the customs and the visas and so on this year, last year. But the people were so friendly, and they were so pleased to see foreigners coming in. I think it was seeing a foreigner was a sign of normality, perhaps for them. But I mean, one of the only times this has ever happened to petrol stations that they don't have Visa or Mastercard because of the sanctions. They have their own card system, and a lot of the petrol stations only took cards. So I'll have to call, get a one of the locals to give them some cash to fill up the tank, fill up my bike. And a couple of times, it's asked the guys to put petrol. I give them money for the petrol. They Put, put it in their card and they filled my tank up and they tried to give them money and they said no no on you go you enjoy our country and tra- enjoy your travels they refused to take any money for the petrol that's awesome so they were incredibly friendly and hospitable you know yeah and the fact that petrol was only like 10 cents a liter was helpful too <laughs> must be nice right but, uh yeah, no, I've been only... around a lot of Persians in my yeah. life, and they're they're great people. They're always laughing and smiling and having a great time. They love their families. Yeah. Very family oriented. Beautiful, beautiful country too. There's mountains and mountains and deserts and tropical. There's fantastic architecture as well. It's, it really is a hidden gem. You know, nobody can get to it at the minute because of the troubles and so on. Mm-hmm. But. Um, that was my favorite, probably one of my favorite split places this year on this trip. Is there a place? It depends. I mean, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, people ask me, what's your favorite city? What's your favorite country? Whatever. Very often, it's actually very little to do with the, the architecture or the location of the city or the, the views or whatever. It's more to do with the people that you meet in that, that I actually met in that place. And if it was in a city that I had a, Met a good bunch of guys, had a really good time. Then, to me, that was one of my favorite cities, you know. But it's it's actually as much to do with the people you're hanging around with and the people you meet than the actual city itself, you know. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I've uh, you know lived in places where I've liked the people. I lived in Maui for a year, and and Maui was great. The people are great. The culture's great. I could I could move there today and be happy living there the rest of my life yeah yeah all right yeah you see see the views yeah i'm sure you saw some amazing views right did you have a camera with you been over the 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some good uh, pictures on my uh, my website from the first trip. I had a GoPro, GoPro with me this year, so I got some movie cameras, movie, movie pictures with some video. I did have an old uh, movie camera with me the first trip, but unfortunately, the vibration of the bike just destroyed it. Mm. And out of all, all the films, I think I got about four seconds of, of uh, shots of me crossing the desert. Oh man, that's a bummer. But uh, so it was a pity. Technology has moved on so much, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I had a bunch of like pictures and videos and posters and all kinds of you know trophies and all kinds of crap from racing motocross as a kid. And uh, yeah my parents got divorced and they agreed to split it. So my mom took her half and she was getting ready to go get it like copied onto digital the same week her house burned down. So now it's just all gone. It's like it, like it was erased by a rattling bike. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it sucks, but you know. <laughs> well, you got your memories. That's what say. I was so, just gonna say. The important that's... thing aren't possessions. Support the memories are the important thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. The first company that's going to be able to times. digitize memories is going to be a trillion dollar company, <laughs> right? It's probably not that far away. Either, like, <laughs> probably <laughs> not, right? <laughs> but uh, mind you, there's a few things I would want to remember. Yeah, so a few things are best for a few things that are best best forgotten. Oh, absolutely! I'm sure there's plenty of things that you would like to have in the in the garbage file from that trip. Yes, <laughs> a couple of things didn't make it into the book. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. I bet you had some stuff written out, and you're like, should I? Well, I've got two. No. <laughs> so I'll leave some stuff out. <laughs> but no, it's pretty, it's, uh, the book's pretty accurate to what happens. Uh, quite open and straight straight in it. And it's, it's had a brilliant, it's got some brilliant reviews. I have to say people seem to be enjoying it. Ah, that's good. over a thousand reviews on, on, on Amazon. That's good. Uh, I'm, I'm happy for you. No, it's great to get feedback, good feedback like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. And like, you know, it's not easy to get that many reviews on Amazon. I've, no. I've, you know, I've read books on Amazon with less reviews than that, that are very good books. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very pleasing. It's got a good following, you know? Yeah, that's great. All right. So I've got a couple stories here. I figured we could go through since you're in the UK. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, some of the laws that they're planning on doing. So I think it's 2035. They're planning on on banning internal combustion engine motorcycles. Are you guys taking that stuff seriously over there? Or do you think that this is something that's going to like peter out towards the end, towards 2030s or something like that? What do you think is going on? I don't think so. I think it's quite political. A lot of it. Um, I don't get the electric thing really because electric in the UK is cheaper to run than a petrol car at the minute, but that's because there's no tax mm. on electric, whereas it's about 40% tax on petrol. You know, if there's no tax on petrol, nobody would drive an electric car. So it's the whole thing's been subsidized. Yeah. And I don't particularly get the green thing either because there's so much damage done with the college of getting the, the batteries and the minerals that they need for the to build the things and then to produce the electricity is getting produced by burning oil as well. So there's a lot of things about the whole thing I don't get, but you sort of wonder where we're just, we're just uh, cogs in the wheel. Some, does, does somebody know a bigger picture? I don't know. I just yeah. don't get it myself. There's a group called, I, I found them called Motocro- or Motorcycle Action Group continues to push back against EV only mandates. And I thought this was cool. I read into it a little bit and they're just working on bikes. They're not worrying about cars at all. They, somebody else can worry about cars. We're going to, yeah. we're going to keep bikes from getting banned. So, you know, it's interesting that it's at 2035. That's the same year that California is going to do it as well. Yeah. So you, you got to wonder 
if there's some sort of coordination going on with this stuff. You do. Um, you wonder what, what, what is the real story behind it all? Is it the big corporations or who's telling who what to do, you know? But it doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense to me. Well, the thing that really sucks about it is they're, you know, they're doing it in America too. They're, they're shutting down a bunch of power plants and saying, oh, we got to go green. But what they're doing is they're shutting down the power plants without replacing them with something. They just say, right, we're, yeah, yeah. we're shutting down and we're going green. But going green doesn't actually mean anything because we're not actually going green. So in reality, they're just shutting down power plants. And I think that's kind of the deal with with what's going on with electric bikes, too. I mean, they're they're outlawing internal combustion engine bikes and saying, oh, you can only use electric bikes. But they don't really have a great model of electric bike. Uh, Harley oh, Davidson, we've been... 200 miles. Yeah, we've been covering mm-hmm. Harley Davidson for a couple months, and their live wires only sold like twelve hundred units. They put, oh yeah, they put hundred million dollars. I think it was three hundred million dollars into the bike, and they've only sold twelve hundred units. So twelve hundred, so, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, not only are they not a great bike, but people don't want them. So I, I don't know what what's going to happen with this. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be delayed and delayed and eventually they'll find a source of electricity. I mean, if electricity was free, I could see the point of it. But if you have to make electricity by burning oil and burning coal, you know, what's the point, you know? Better just putting some petrol in your gas tank and away you go. Yeah, I mean, all you're really doing is turning your bike into a coal burner instead of a a gas burner. It's just an extension of a coal plant depending on where you're living. And here in America, we got a lot of coal plants. We got a lot of natural gas yeah. plants too, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. they, uh, you go, well, California's got lots of, lots of solar power and lots of sunshine, that sort of thing. But the UK, we don't have that, you know, so no. you don't know where they're going to get it from. Yeah. You've got wind power, but wind power only works when it's windy. So what's going to happen the rest of the time, you know? Well, and you're going to have to crisscross your country with power lines. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have power lines running every which way. To capture all that energy and get it to the population, you got your small country, so it's not like you can fit a ton of windmills. And when I mean, it's like I think it's two thousand windmills the size of the Statue of Liberty to uh, generate as much power as one nuclear power plant. So I mean, I don't know if they're planning on going offshore in the UK or if they're just planning on planting windmills everywhere, but that's what they're going to have to do if they, they want to do it, which is why I think it's just talk where they go, we're going to go green, but you know, like in America, same thing. They're saying we're going green, but we're not. Yeah. Leave that to the next, the next generation of politicians, you know, it's easy to promise, easy to make a promise. It's a little bit more harder to follow through on it. And was 2035, the politicians making those promises aren't going to be the ones that are going to be having to try and carry it on. No. So it's very easy to make that sort of promise at the minute. Yeah. It could be worse people, though, which is what I'm worried about. By, by 2035, they're going to go. Probably 20, will be, No, yeah. man, we got rid of those five years ago. <laughs> all right. I got I another think, story I don't here. Think it could be worse. Yeah. I, I, all right. So I've got another story here. Zero DSR slash X launched as long range electric adventure motorcycle. So let me see. Let me tell you what their idea of an, a long range adventure motorcycle is. And let's see if you would take this on your trip. 155 to 200 miles off road. Uh, 180 oh. miles on a highway and 85 miles uh, oh no! Excuse me. One hundred and eighty miles of city, and eighty-five miles of highway. Oh, I should have read that in kilometers. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, no, we do miles. We do miles as well. Okay. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I rode from Sudan. It's a place called Wow to to Juba, which is about six hundred miles of dirt road, which I had to tra- cross without a petrol station so to carry. Uh, I think about 16 or 17 gallons of petrol on the bike and two jerry cans and what was in the tank and a couple of extra bottles. We can already lift the bike off the stand, you know? Yeah. 
So you can't do that in the six hundred. You can't do six hundred miles off road on a electric bike too easy. I don't think. You know what I think they do is they just go, let's pack a bunch of crap on it, make it look like an adventure bike. We'll call it off. We'll call it long range, and we'll just change the definition of long range. <laughs> yeah. Well, fifty miles is a long way if you're walking. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that is you know? a very good point, right? All right. Uh, Last story I got here, and then uh, we'll call it a night. This one, I was going to bring this up. I do a normal show once a week with my buddy, and I was going to bring this one up with my buddy because I've got all kinds of opinions about this one, but I'm going to let you give your opinion first on it and see okay. see what you have. So. Solo woman first to ride across Africa on an electric motorcycle. Now, this bike had 14 horsepower. It went 56 miles per hour. It got 50 to 60 miles per charge, and it was an 8,000-mile trip. What do, you, what do you think when you, when you hear something like that? Well, it's, I mean, the first question I would ask is, why would you want to do that? Is it just to get in the record books? You know, there's, um, I went away traveling alone for myself to, to challenge myself, to learn things about myself, to learn things about the world. There's a lot of people seem to be doing these trips to try and get in a record book, to be the first person to do this, to do, to get the bragging rights, to go to the pub and say, I did, I did this. Have the Instagram followers. And the, the social media is the other thing you <laughs> put it on social, social media to take their YouTube videos out. And really, what is the point, you know? I was um, blown away when I read this. I was just blown away. It was like you're, you're making, first of all, like South Africa is the most dangerous place in the world right now. And you're yeah. a solo woman going to South Africa. And you're making the trip more dangerous than it needs to be. You could be on a gas-powered yeah. bike and stop for gas whenever you need to. You don't have to. With this electric bike, 55 to 60 miles per charge, you're dependent on somebody every day, multiple times per day, dependent on yeah. somebody. Yeah. And it just seems like... And then, you know, I, I look at this article is from Fox news and Fox news is supposed to be the big, bad conservative news here in America. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're evil. They want to uh, take away women's right to vote. And it's like, no, look at their, this is a, an article. They're bragging about this woman being the first one. If, if Fox news was really this big, bad conservative news company, they would be going, where is this woman's father? How, why, yeah. what the hell is, where is her husband? Where is her father? What is wrong with it? Why would they let her yeah. do something like this? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, respect to women, it's, it's a tremendous challenge to do something like that. You know, for sure. some women, Africa's not a great place to be. They're, no. I was scared, scared enough as a guy, let alone as a single woman, so great respect for her to do that. But I do question, you see YouTube and what's going on, People are doing it to get so many followers to do to try and make money out of it. I don't know if anybody ever makes money out of it, getting followers. But you, you do a trip like that. You do it for yourself. You you do it for your memories. You, most times, people aren't really that interested. What what you hear, what you saw, what you were doing. They'll listen to your stories a bit, and then they'll get bored and they'll want to talk about the football again. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you do, I think if you do a trip like that for the bragging rights or for the social media or for the, to be the first to do it, you're just going to end up disappointed because it's not going to be that you're going to get a blast when you get home. And then, but then your next day, your, your last week's news, you know? Yeah. And then um, you've got to just keep doing it the rest of your life to keep up yeah. the grift or you've got to, say, you know, come down off of that. And I'm, I'm guessing with these people who are like, you know, they they even even in the article they're like you can follow her next journey on her Instagram where it'll yeah. show you where she's gonna be and what she's doing and look at they're taking pictures with the locals and blah 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 and it's like that's like a heroin addiction for some of these people yeah. and if you come home 
and you go, well, now I either got to go back to work or I got to heap up this addiction. And pretty soon, just like every addict, something bad is going to happen because you lose control of your life and things go bad. And when you're doing things like, like I, you know, I'm all for a woman going on a ride. I love, I love women that ride dirt bikes. Some of my favorite women are, are dirt bike riders. Like I love it, but don't do something overly dangerous just to say that you did it. It's just not no. worth it. Like no. go with somebody else. I mean, how hard it would it be to find somebody else to go with? It was just, I couldn't believe like, Here's here's a quote. Well, I don't mean a bit. I know I know different girls. I've met a few girls that traveled on their own on motorbikes around the world. And to be fair, they've always usually been treated with respect and with. I don't doubt it. They've, they've gone all right. You know, I don't think it's that bad a single girl going off and doing something like that. But just to do it on an electric bike and to make it so much more difficult. And it, so that's making a. So if you're trying to make a point about something, you really. It's like you you're. Doing it? You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for sponsorship, or you're doing it for. Trying to make it like your way, bikes the way forward. I don't know. It's, yeah, you it's, should be doing it for yourself rather than anybody else. You know, that's just my point. It's like when the when the female reporter, good looking female journalist, walks into the jail to go interview the murderer, and all the guys see her on the side. Ooh, instead of wearing her hot looking pantsuit, she just wears a string bikini instead. You're like. Well, you're just now at this point, you're just asking for trouble. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> yeah, I, that'd be a fun one. But yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe when I when I read here was a quote that I that I read in here that I that I thought was crazy. I didn't feel safe. There was issues with military and police. It's like, yeah, you went to the most dangerous place on earth. Like what? Are, That's what you're going to get. That's what you're going to get. You know? Yeah. It's like, how could you be surprised about this? They saw me and they were asking where the rest of my group was and where my husband was. And then it's like, oh, how could they do? How could they ask something like that? And it's like, yeah, because you're in a freaking war zone and they wonder what the hell is wrong with you. Like, <laughs> are yeah, you just crazy. looking for trouble or what? Well, who knows? Yeah. I'm sure she's an interesting character, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, I wouldn't, I guarantee I would have a blast on that ride with her, but take me on the ride with you. Like I'll, yeah. I'll be there. I'll have my, I'm a crazy American. I'll, I'll hide my gun in my, in my prosthetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm going to have to call a halt to the, um, got somebody waiting for me here. Nope, perfect. We're, we're out of time. Any, we're right at time anyways. Let's call it a night. Good. Great. That was uh, great. Thanks for coming on with us, Chris. It was great talking with you. Have a good night. Thanks so much. <laughs>